Hi guys, welcome back to Freedom Papers. This is Morgan Zeggers, and we're joined by my best friend, Connor Clegg. Hi everybody, <laughs> round two, here we go. I call Connor my best friend because I just decided. I know he has other best friends, okay? Well, no. I... But when it comes to loving our country and our founding and the Federalist and Anti-Federalist ratification debate, we're best friends. It's true, it's true. You just have to say things until they happen. Yeah. You speak it into existence, just like the founding of our nation, right? Manifest. Okay. I'll stop harassing Connor. Um, <laughs> you guys, today we're talking about Federalist Paper 34. What do you know? It's about taxes. I warned you that this was going to be a long topic. But this is on a specific kind of getting into what we talked about last time, where there's differences in powers between state and federal, specifically guided via our constitution written into the language. We're going to talk a little bit more about concurrent powers in this paper of the balance between state and federal powers, specifically with taxation. So it's titled the same subject continued. It's by Hamilton. And just to kick it off, I figured I'd do the first sentence because it's a good summary sentence. Sometimes they're not. Um, oh, that's insulting. I, I don't mean to insult our founders. Um, but Publius says, quote, I flatter myself. It has been clearly shown in my last number that the particular states under the proposed constitution would have co-equal authority with the union in the article of revenue, except as to duties on imports. As this leaves open to the states far the greatest part of the resources of the community, there can be no color for the assertion that they would not possess means as abundant as could be desired for the supply of their own wants, independent of all external control. That the field is sufficiently wide will more fully appear when we come to develop the inconsiderable share of the public expenses for which it will fall to the lot of the state governments to provide. Um, basics, he's trying to settle the concerns of anti-federalists and really anybody that's concerned about the language of the Constitution of potential taking of the power of the states. We want to make sure the states have their own power. It's the proper check against the federal government. And Hamilton is trying to settle the worries right from here. And he's introducing the fact that we're about to talk about concurrent powers. Connor? I concur. You concur like the concurrent powers. We have Thank concurring you. opiniones. Concurring opinions. Um, and is that the Spanish word? Um, no, nope. I don't think so. Just ignore that. Um, I'll have to figure out that. I was, oddly enough, I was a Spanish minor in college. Fascinating. Uh, but Why? I, what? Do you want to share that with the team? Well, look, I was in Texas and, uh, growing up, you realize yeah. that there's a lot of, you know, people to communicate with, uh, that are Hispanic and speak Spanish. And also I think it's a beautiful language. Uh, and the culture was something that I was very deeply into when it came to politics. I did my thesis in college on Latin uh, American politics, specifically specifically um, uh, the relationship between Colombia and Venezuela and how the U.S. enabled kind of a proxy war there and et cetera, oh, that is et cetera. It's, yeah, it's, it's really Actually, fun. that's something I'm like, whoa, anyway, I but, need to yeah, hear more about this off camera in Spanish. when we're um, talking about non-freedom papers things. Sorry to put you on the spot. I was just opinio, curious. Opiniones, perhaps. I don't remember though. Um, well, I know what I always say. I say questiones. That's not the word for question in Spanish. Preguntas. Anyway, uh, a great paper, and uh, I, honestly, I got to tell you, I'm tired of talking about taxes, but they're important, and it shows how important they are mm -hmm. uh, because Hamilton spent so many papers on them. So it's one of those things where I think you really should read the paper uh, and then come here for a little bit of side talk and uh, 
and and fun commentary from there. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty quick topic because it's kind of repetitive, not in the sense of exact same points, but same topic, same theme. Um, let's move into this, the first section. Uh-huh. Uh, first thing that caught my eye, Publius said, to argue upon abstract principles that this coordinate authority cannot exist with that would be to set up theory and supposition against fact and reality. So he's kind of doing a smackdown right at the start of the paper saying, if you don't think like us, if you disagree, then you're not dealing with reality here. Well, yeah. And uh, he has a great line and said, however proper such reasonings might be to show that a thing ought not to exist, they are wholly to be rejected when they are made use of to prove that it does not exist, contrary to the evidence of the fact itself, right? So he's saying that you can't, you know, arguing that something shouldn't exist is one thing, but to argue that something doesn't exist when it's so obvious that it, it is right in front of your face, it's like saying that this, God, this is heavy. That this, this <laughs> you've never held it, it be before? That heavy. No, I've never held this bus. I posed with it. Oh. Holding it like a baby. It's like saying that this doesn't exist, right? <laughs> I'm arguing that it For doesn't exist when it's very obvious, right? I'm very, it's very obvious that this bust of James Madison exists, but I'm going to sit here and argue that it doesn't. Um, you just look stupid and you look silly and you look obstinate, right? You look like a socialist um, telling us that we're going to try it and it's going to work this time in America. Exactly. But for me to say that this bust ought not to exist, I am recognizing the premise that it does exist. I'm just saying that it shouldn't. Right? Love that. So. Now, Connor, I was kind of curious. I wanted to get your thoughts on this because he, he brings up a bunch of random examples, I would say, mm-hmm. throughout the paper. And I don't want to go into all of them because <laughs> it's more of a reading experience for you guys. Right. Um, but this this thing about the Roman Republic, he brings in the fact that there were there were separation of powers, se- like separate uh, parts of the government that had their own individual powers, some concurrent as well, and that they didn't infringe on each other. They they lasted quite some time. And I don't want to read the whole thing, mm-hmm. but I liked at the end. It said, he said. Um, the former, in which the people voted by centuries, was so arranged as to give a superiority to the patrician interest. In the latter, in which numbers prevailed, the plebeian interest had an entire predominancy. And yet these two legislatures coexisted for ages, and the Roman Republic attained to the pinnacle of human greatness. That last part, that that they coexisted for ages, Mm -hmm. and Rome was able to achieve such greatness. The pinnacle of human greatness. I mean, that's quite a statement. And can you think of a greater example than, than that combination and that separation? No. No. So I think that was fantastic. Um, I love Roman history. And yeah. so I love whenever he brings up little examples like this. Um, I don't have anything beyond that of just, I thought it was a great thing to bring in, you know? Well, the uh, the only thing that I would add to that is that the patricians and the plebes were two completely different subsets of people, right? It had to do with um, heritage and familial ancestry, and then also your, um, your, your kind of station in life, right? So the patricians were the upper class and the plebeians were the you know, kind of the normies of the world, the lower classes, the middle classes even. Mm. Um, And it was like two distinct bodies in that sense as well, right? And so they couldn't have had further interests from one another. Yet the fact that they were still able to coexist mostly peacefully, I think is a good lesson for Hamilton to bring into play here because it's like, yeah, I mean, you could have a completely differing opinion from the federal government, you, you, you state of New Hampshire or whatever, um, for example, uh, but just like the patricians and the plebeians, we're going to coexist and we're going to you know, legislate separately and uh, we're going to have concurring powers and the relationship is going to be fine because it's happened before. It'll happen here. Right. What do you think from that context? Maybe that's an interesting example then for him to bring in. 
Yeah, it could have been. You know, it's kind of like, do you think maybe the readers were a little bit offended of like, are you saying that there's going to be an elite <laughs> class and then a, a normal person Morgan Zegers style class? Hello. Not necessarily. Um, Homesteaders? Yeah, I mean, I, country bumpkins. It, it it was it was about political power. That was that was the understood argument there at the time. Yeah. Was that the patricians were people who were politically connected and had the political power, which I think is a, a really good uh, tie-in with like the federal government. Obviously, yeah. they're the politically connected class, um, and the plebeians, in a sense, maybe were just like the not so politically connected, and that's the uh, that's the connection to the states, right? Mm -hmm. But I thought it was really interesting. I didn't actually know about the uh, the committee center center. The excuse me. Comitia Centurata and uh, Comitia Tributa. Tributa. Yeah. I didn't know about that. So I meant to look more into that before the show started, but then we got distracted. But Yeah, well, we, there's a lot of current events going on, and so we had some fierce conversation before <laughs> filming. Um, but it, like I said, I, I just really enjoy the history of the Roman Republic, and so I hadn't heard of those two phrases either. And it, it made me very interested in it. Flash forward, let's go to the next paragraph. Yeah. What it, I want to hear your reaction to this sentence. It says, in a short course of time, the wants of the states will naturally reduce themselves within a very narrow compass. And in the interim, the United States will in all probability find it convenient to abstain wholly from those objects to which the particular states would be inclined to resort. So I, maybe I'm taking this wrong, mm -hmm. but I'm taking that as he really thinks the federal government won't be interested in the future in yeah. in taking part in something that the states really should be handling, especially according to what's designated to the states, or most importantly, not designated to the federal government in the Constitution. And so then with that, anything that's not listed specifically for the federal government is under the power and jurisdiction of the states. And Hamilton's telling us it's not like they need a super duper big power to tax anyways, because they won't have to deal with much because the states have their own powers that we won't even want to encroach on. Mm -hmm. That was a big lie. Have you heard of the Department of Education, Connor? I am familiar. Um... That was my thought. I was just thinking of all the things like that's a little weird because they certainly like to encroach on state affairs now. Yeah. The, in all probability, would find it convenient to abstain wholly from those objects to which the particular states would be inclined to resort. So, no, it's it, it kind of is just kind of laughable because especially seeing that he goes on here later in the paper or maybe earlier in the paper, um, I think later in the paper, to talk about human nature and how it doesn't change, something that we bring up on the show all the time, right? Yes, we like, were just talking about that before. Exactly. So he he brings that up himself, and then it's like, okay, are you just going to ignore the fact that you, you know, disregarded it here on page 202 of the Federalist Papers with a foreword from Charles Kessler? Charles Kessler um, version. It's the best one. It is the best version. Yeah, no, it, it's insane. The, the, the federal government will always find a way to step in and fill the gap that a state decides not to fill. And then even if the state decides to fill a gap or to govern themselves in a certain way, the federal government, I think we see from experience, is more, more than... How are you? Sorry. Is more than willing so to step hot. in. It's very toasty in here. It, <laughs> it's not even a... It's Anybody even back a, there? Can we fix the situation? It's not even a dry heat. <laughs> I'm like slunched over my chair like... <laughs> I've sipped water like 20 times. <laughs> I'm sorry to everybody listening. Um, um, but Connor, yeah. yeah. I want to know what this made me think of. Yeah. Put yourself... your Morgan Seggers in high school. Oh, no. Not an ideal time. Okay. I, I, I was boyfriend? telling you... Uh, Chuck what? or what was, your, what was his name? Jeffrey. Jeffrey, that's oh, right. Oh, I've got to send him this episode now. Good. What a sweetheart. I'm going to go see him. Actually, I'm going home for um, to hang out with my family. We're going on a fishing trip because we're country bumpkins. Um, maybe I'll invite Jeffrey just to tell you. There you go. <laughs> He's like, please stop bringing me up on your show, Morgan. <laughs> but, Sweet um, Jeff. Uh, so, your Morgan 
in political class in high school, mm -hmm. I was explained the Department of Education. And even in college, this is how they taught it. But professors and teachers tell you that, well, some states don't have the ability, the budget, the strong economy. And then with that, the ability to tax that strong economy, the funds to take care of the things like education and their schools. And so their quality of education, the quality of their schools is a lot lesser than other states. And so the Department of Education exists because we need to be able to give more funds to those struggling states. And in your head, you're just like, as a student, you're like, that makes sense. That's really nice. They don't explain, well, when our founders wrote the Constitution, this was not something that was assigned to the federal government. Right. And then this was created in an unconstitutional way. And we're just telling you the feel-good reason where some students don't get all the resources as other states. And so it's important for us to take tax dollars from other areas of the country and put them into the other states because that's fair and moral and just. It, do you see how it's like they've just normalized yeah. the concept of an unconstitutionally existing entity in our federal government? Well, I mean, okay, listen. Tell me. <laughs> Explain, because I don't like their reasoning. I Come at me. Don't but think, also don't. I'm not in the mood. I, I won't. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that, in theory, a, a federal department of education is a terrible thing. In practice, it turns out to not be mm -hmm. a good thing, obviously, right? Um, but children are a moral good, and the education of children is a moral necessity, and it's a virtue uh, that should be protected and nurtured by the federal government uh, if we want to have a just uh, and right society, right? So to have a federal branch or a federal department, you know, dedicated to that is not a bad idea in, in theory, but it just in practice, it's been corrupted, obviously. Yeah. And the reason why is the teachers unions, the teachers unions, they come in and they start to say, oh, well, we need more money for this, that and the other. And in reality, we're sending more and more money to, to, to cities like Chicago and to New York and to L.A. where the kids are failing. Baltimore is failing, yeah. you know, 88 percent. Get that 88 percent of the students in Baltimore. Not only can they not read at grade level, they're reading it at kindergarten level in high what? school, right? High yeah. schoolers. High schoolers reading at kindergarten level. It's not even that they're not at grade level. That it's not that they're not reading at eleventh grade level. They're reading at a kindergarten level, right? Wow, they and, need Miss Morgan in well, their lives. Probably. And so, do you know how much money gets sent to the city of Baltimore by the DOE or the Department of Education? Probably a lot. I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but yeah. there's probably a lot. The Department of Education is a total failure. Yeah. But I like but the concept. I will defend you the existence of it. And you have to get rid of the bureaucrats, you have to get rid of the lobbyists, the unions, and it should simply be used to create a, and this maybe is where you disagree with me again, I don't know. No, maybe I see. think that the Department of Education should be used as a way to create a national curriculum, mm. right, that is standardized and focused on uh, a core set of principles and things that are to be taught and the ways in which we are to teach them, right? Now, that needs to be decided on not by bureaucrats in the Department of Education or so-called experts, but it needs to be something that is accountable to the people, right? So just like we approve a budget every single year, we need to approve a curriculum. Congress needs to approve a curriculum. Put Congress people on the record to approve what's being taught to kids at a federally mandated state-by-state -state level. Right. Yeah. And that's how you get radicalism out of the schools. And that's how you get people fired up about actually going and sending good people to Congress, oh. because I think you're going to elect a lot less Ilhan Omar's whenever they have to be put on the record about teaching kids about jihad and the <laughs> rainbow mafia. Right. 
and how terrible America is. No one wants to vote for that. No. So I mean, we're seeing that like that's why there's so much activism at the school board level, because totally. that's where things are really handled. That's how we now, become the parents party. Connor, this Sorry. is my favorite topic. So never worry about like challenging Morgan on education <laughs> stuff, because I go back and forth as much as I believe in small government. And as much as I want to make sure that we are like dominating school board races and school boards and paying attention at the local level, making sure that states are pro or pro educational freedom in terms of supporting homeschool supporting school choice supporting charter school private school and public school because i completely believe in that concept i'm i think we just need to reevaluate and restructure things yeah i also I've, i think i've talked to you i have like a list of things i would never i don't want to run for office i'm mm -hmm. not interested in like being a politician or anything i'm a woman with a certain vision and it's not to it's be not like that. the president of the United States. But if Morgan ever <clears throat> took part in government, it would absolutely and I'm talking federal government. Yeah, it, it would absolutely be to lead the Department of Education. Good. And I would get radical. As um, you should. So I hope when I'm about to become Department of Education leader, Education secretary, secretary. I'm about to become Secretary Morgan Zeggers of the Department of Education. I hope the leftists clip this video Sex egg. and just try and destroy me like Betsy DeVos. And then I will come in and I will completely restructure the entire education system in this country. So that's why it's like, this is exciting. I love this topic, but I completely agree. In theory, sounds fantastic. With the, the shape of our federal government, does it seem possible to me? Potentially, like there's a lot of reforms where I'm like, could we actually make that happen if we just went in with like an iron fist and said, let's do this? Yeah, I mean, or is it impossible because this is just how? Oh no, of course it's not impossible. Government can get no, of course it's not impossible. Um, you can never point to what FDR did with the New Deal uh, and tell me that it's impossible to get something done because it is right. Mm. That man governed with an iron fist. Now, was it a good thing? I'm not. You know, we, we can get into the merits of the New Deal at another episode, but that takes a lot longer than this, yeah. right? But the man governed with an iron freaking fist, right? So did LBJ with the Great Society. It seems like, and so did Wilson in a lot of ways with the income tax. And like, it seems like the left is always willing to go in there and go into the executive branch and govern with this iron fist and just impose their will on the people and impose their will on the United States of America. In a bad way. In a bad way, typically. Um, and we just take it. And then whenever people on the right get into office, they like pussyfoot around and they don't really do anything. Yeah. And imagine <laughs> like imagine. I hate to say it, but like, I think we're the good guys. We're the side of freedom. We want to empower people with individual responsibility, individual freedom. Yeah. The the core values that we have are righteous and true. And so if we went in with an iron fist, but in a righteous way, and right. we put our ideas in, it, the way the left does it, it's dominating, it's oppressive, it's tyrannical, and it is hurtful to the people with the outcomes. If we did it with our values for the first time, I, I think we could bring such positive change with such positive change and here's the thing is that the first thing that we'd actually have to do wouldn't even be imposing our values it would have to be more of just a correction right mm -hmm. it would be all right yeah so we're getting rid of social security sorry you know <laughs> <laughs> and that's like a political pariah statement i'm never going to get elected to anything now but at the end of the day social the security is papers. such a waste of money right yeah but, but then we get you into can't the whole say conversation, that right because it's like taking care of 
the youngest generation and the oldest generations in our society is completely abandoned. And so instead we're like, the government will do it. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's so, a whole other topic. But. So it has to be corrective and then it has to be prescriptive after that. But we don't even want to go in there and do anything, right? We just want to cut taxes for Amazon and Microsoft and, and Facebook. That's all that the right really wants to do. Nasty. So all I'm saying is that we could actually go in and make some positive differences here um, if we just had frankly the political will to do so but i'm trying and i'm struggling to find conservatives with the political will to actually go in and make change other than maybe like governor desantis right oh so. he's on my mind um mr governor desantis anyway if you need a department of education secretary please call me um how do we get here <laughs> because one of the greatest examples of federal oh, that's right. tax sorry, sorry. revenue going to state issues is education and it's a complete waste. And you guys, I, I don't know the numbers right now. I forgot to bring my laptop as well. And so Me I can't too. cite them. Um, I, I hate screen time. And so I just usually don't bring my laptop places. But if you look at the states that spend the most on education, especially with the influx of federal tax dollars, they're actually the worst outcomes and the worst grades for, for students, worst graduation rates, etc. A great example is where I'm from in New York State, where we pay some of the most per capita per student or per student in terms of spending and education and have some of the worst grades and worst yep. outcomes for children. Florida pays a significant amount less and they have some of the greatest grades in the school. In well, the it's country, about so. being efficient, right? It's yeah. not a money laundering operation. It's actually no. going to the kids. It's unfortunate. Um, but you guys, let's move on, Connor, because this, this yes. can get wacky and we're keeping these episodes short and sweet like me. Not like you because you're tall and manly. Ugh. Okay. I mean, that's nice in its own way. Sorry, not to be mean. But women will rule the world. <laughs> what a what? crazy episode. Um, maybe if we act crazy, we'll get like more followers of the like, wow, this is a wild show. They're so fun and young and hip. <laughs> no more grandparents, Connor and Morgan. Um, okay. Last Great. thing that I highlighted in this, because then it just gets a little... Um, a little heady. Yeah. yeah, a little. That's a good word for it. Um, so last quote that caught my eye. You can't limit the powers is what Hamilton is saying. He says, in pursuing this inquiry, we must bear in mind that we are not to confine our view to the present period. So the circumstances of what everybody's dealing with in the country at the time, but to look forward to remote futurity. Constitutions of civil government are not to be framed upon a calculation of existing exigencies, but upon a combination of these with the probable exigencies of ages, according to the natural and tried course of human affairs. Nothing, therefore, can be more fallacious than to infer the extent of any power proper to be lodged in the national government from an estimate of its immediate necessities. There ought to be a capacity to provide for future contingencies as they may happen. So I see simplifying that. You can't create a government based on the current circumstances. What I love about our founding fathers is that they built a government to last. They wanted to stay, to withstand the test of time. Other republics, other democracies, attempts at them had failed after a century or two centuries. And then the Republic of Rome was the greatest example of how did that collapse? And so they tried to look at those uh, failures and make sure that we provided solutions to those and avoided those problems. And so this was another great example of what he's saying is if we want to last, we need to be able to have the capacity to change, to adjust, and be um, fluid for finding solutions. And not only that, but providing solution or resources and funds to actually carry out those solutions. Connor? Yes. yes. Um, <clears throat> I, I highlighted a part in here that I thought was kind of interesting. So he goes, oh, really? yeah. Is that okay? No. Okay. <laughs> um, so he's talking about how Europe is kind of a um, fiery 
potentially combustible place. Yeah. Uh, and he says, or if the combustible materials that now seem to be collecting should be dissipated without coming to maturity, or if a flame should be kindled without extending to us, what security can we have that our tranquility will long remain undisturbed from some other cause or from some other quarter? Let us recollect that peace or war will not always be left to our option, right? So that's a situation where he's basically laying out the groundwork for what happens in 1941 whenever we're attacked by Japan, right? Yeah. We had to be prepared at that point, knowing that it was a possibility that we're attacked to go into war at any moment because we did. We ended up going into war because that's what the American people decided they wanted and what Roosevelt led us to do, mm -hmm. right? But we were attacked. And that was the only, what, only the second, uh, I guess, third time that America had been attacked on our own sovereign soil, right? So it was 1812, and then that was the second time. The Alamo? Pearl Harbor was, no, Pearl Har that was Texas soil. Oh. Uh, we weren't part of America. So it was uh, 1812, and then Pearl Harbor, and then 9-11, mm. right? The only three major attacks on American soil, right? So I this was only the second time that it ever happened. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, now oh, the Alamo so was, 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 was actually <laughs> Mexican land. Uh, and the Texans were defending it as their own. They claimed sovereignty over it. Mexico said, you can't do that. My and bad, so, my bad. Yeah. They were white settlers on Mexican land. I remember the Alamo. Anyway, uh, so I thought that that was a really interesting thing to kind of lay out because it does turn out to be objectively true that we do need to be prepared to go to war at any point to defend ourselves and our interests. Mm -hmm. um, and I, unfortunately, I think that that's been perverted by our leaders. So as to mean that we have to be prepared and we have to have this massive military budget so we can go about building schools in Afghanistan for the little Afghan girls or whatever, or, you know, to go promote the trans agenda in Uganda, right? Really, at the end of the day, all Hamilton was saying was that we have to be prepared if we're attacked, if war comes to our shores, that we have to be ready to respond and protect our people, right? He wasn't saying, and this goes back to the Iron Fist thing, the people on the right, presidents on the right, are only willing to use the Iron Fist of government whenever it comes to defense spending, right? And that was always the orthodoxy of the GOP that no one was ever really questioning. Like, we have to have a strong military. We have to build it up in defense blah, 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 so we can export American values throughout the world. And now I'm just sitting here thinking like, what a freaking joke, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so much that we could be doing with that that would actually be more defensive to the United States and our own interests, like building a wall on the southern border, than exporting the values that we supposedly hold, which we don't, over to Ukraine anymore. Hamilton was right. Small but strong, ready, willing, and able to defend ourselves against attacks on American soil. I don't know yeah. if I took this in a place that you had no idea where no, I was going. No, I'm actually I'm glad. There. I so. forgot to highlight that. First of all, the thing about Europe, I thought it was this interesting foreshadowing. I mean, this was written in yeah. 1787. And he's just talking about, like, uh, what did he say? That Europe was going to combust? Yeah. And so I thought about it, and it's like, it really did. I mean, once you started to hit the 20th century, you had World War One, World War Two, and just the chaos that was spun up after decades, centuries of yeah. turmoil and, and hate towards each other and uh, one thing led to another i mean the assassination of, of what was it archduke, archduke Franz ferdinand. ferdinand yeah that is like an infamous moment and a lot of people are like how who why was that such a big moment but when you start to understand the history that led up to it it's like wow our for, our founders kind of foreshadowed that bad things were going to happen in that entire region so i find that fascinating the other thing was yes the military budget where there's a, a big important part of being strong and having peace through strength. But yeah. I, I find it fascinating. And you aren't exaggerating when you say that, like, yeah, money goes to try and build schools in Middle Eastern countries for students there. You cannot actually try and change a culture. And I've no. heard from many actual, like actual veterans that are like, yeah, that I went over there and, and they really do 
the government tells us that we have to try and build a school and then get the adults of that culture that have been there for cent like thousands of years to now embrace our Western values and start educating their children in the way that we expect them to. And it's like, what am I doing? And to hear them talk about it, it's like, that's not why they joined the military. No, of course not. That's not why we assume we're giving so much money to the military. And then to find out that the people even carrying out the plans are like, I didn't exactly know what we were doing, but like that was our mission, our assignment. It's fascinating. And so it's just a great example of we've derailed so much from yeah. original intent. And uh, I kind of want to close it on that. Connor, yeah. do you have anything else? I mean, no. Uh, America's an exceptional place, and uh, the West is an exceptional culture, and our society is better than others, and it's okay to say that. Yeah. I mean, you guys, sorry for being a little kooky this episode. I've just been <laughs> outside so much. I've gotten so much sun, and I just, I think I've, all the, the vitamin D is getting to me. I feel like really cheerful. So sorry for all the also, energy. Don't wear sunscreen. Yeah, especially with oxybenzone. Oxybenzones. Too many chemicals are going into your bodies. Thank you for saying that. Of course. Did you know, guys, women have about an average of 300 chemicals that we put on our skin every day from makeup to moisturizer to all these things. And it's pretty, pretty bad. And It's pretty, pretty bad. Pretty, pretty bad. Anyway. But um, vitamin D is actually really good for you. The sun is good for you. Who knew? And that's why I'm so cheerful. But sorry for being so jazzed. Connor, thanks for joining. Thanks. Bye-bye. You know I love it. Bye, guys. Bye.